Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about their preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Any actor working on a long-running drama, but particularly in soap opera, has to deal with a set of requirements unlike any other. During lockdown, I was fascinated to talk to the actor Rob Mallard about playing the troubled character of Daniel Osborne in one of the nation's favourite soaps, Coronation Street. Rob Mallard, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to talk to you. Uh, We're going to be talking about Daniel Osborne in Coronation Street. Now... I know you'd done lots of work before you got into Coronation Street, but can I ask you, do you remember your first day on a film set and what it was like for you uh, walking on and what it was? Yeah, my very first film, well, very first set that I was on was Channel 4 series called No Offence. And it was right after I'd left drama school as well. I hit the ground running. I left in September and by October I'd booked this job. Um, and what it was, was to play a rent boy. Um, and it was just one little scene. And, uh, in, I think it's in the last episode of the series, the, uh, the main characters are chasing after the, the, the villain and they, as a bit of a gag, stumble upon me and this other guy cruising basically outdoors. So that was my first, uh, that was my breach into, into TV when I got there... A baptism of fire. A real baptism. And, uh, and when my, gra- my grandma was insistent on watching it, even though he kept saying that she wouldn't get it. She wouldn't get it. Um, but yeah, the first, time, the first day I got there and I was picked up, uh, picked up in a car at my house, um, just me in the car, um, driven to the set. And uh, the first time you see your name on a, one of those little cubicle dressing rooms, they're tiny, aren't they? They're tiny, but... It felt like um, it felt like a palace the first time, <laughs> and you get a call sheet. Don't you? I remember the first time I was on set. There's a call sheet for it's your day, it's when you're called, it's when you have to be in makeup. So it's a sheet. Seeing my name on the call sheet for the first time was really exciting. And seeing your name on a sheet with other other names that you recognise and respect as well. That's um, well, there's a bit quite a bit of imposter syndrome that kicks in at that point. You think I can't believe I'm being included in the same. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And we should and we should talk about that because we all go through that, don't we? We all go through that thing of like, 
I don't deserve to be here. I've not done enough. You know, that's a feeling that I think all actors have, but very rarely share about. Yeah, it's and it's it's bizarre as well because you spend like a lot of actors like me, you you spend thousands of pounds training to do it, only to come out the other side still thinking that you're not supposed to be there. Um, I don't. Maybe it's because it's maybe it's because you are the product rather than you're not making something that's separate to you that you can sell on mass and that that will be criticised. It's you that you're selling, and it's you directly that will get. The criticism so maybe that has something to do with it maybe it's because you sat literally in the line of fire for the praise and for the uh, criticism do you know what I mean maybe it's got something to do totally and I and I but I still feel it now you know and I've been working for 30 odd years 35 years really yeah professionally and it's it is a I still get it and I there's a bit of me that you know it is a terrible burden on on me sometimes but also I quite like it the day I feel like Oh, I deserve this, or you know, I should be here. That's the that's the day I should be worried about it, really. So you you would say that it keeps you um, it keeps you on, but it's important, isn't it, to stay on that edge? I would imagine because, like you say, there otherwise you can get complacent. Yeah, and also just to enjoy it and appreciate it. You know, I I, I feel the same about nerves that I enjoy having being nervous because it means I care. You know, that's 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 the way I feel. It's like sitting on top of a rocket ship, though, isn't it? With nerves, it it could it could be successful, and you could end up orbiting, or you could get carried away by it, and it completely completely pulls you apart, doesn't it? So weird. It's, yeah. I have the I have this uh, thing now that uh, since I left drama school, um, I've not gone more than two years without doing a play because of that that feeling of not wanting of not wanting to be come afraid of stepping out in front of a live audience. Because when you've got a camera, um, you can you can just say, oh, no, I don't want to look. Can I try that again? Or, you know, do you know what I mean? There's lots of opportunities to get it right. Whereas going out on stage, you have many opportunities, I suppose, depending on the run. Uh, more opportunities, I would say, actually, than filming. Because in filming, one is chosen and then it stays that way forever. Whereas on stage, you have a, an opportunity to come back every night and do it a bit differently at drama school did you do any any film technique did you work with a camera at all um they had uh one one or two sessions where an actor would come in but if i remember correctly there weren't oh no there were there were i was just going to say i don't think there, there were any cameras but that was that was for a different thing that um yeah it was it was once most drama schools don't seem to offer much in the way of um acting for TV and screen. Um, it, like one little module here and there. But the module that we did get was useful. It was packed full of... Because it was someone that was working in the industry. Um, just loads of little tips and stuff. But I think most of that you kind of pick up on the job whilst whilst you're doing it, especially if you're working with um, generous actors. Um, yes. They will... They will like in, in Corrie, for example, Chris Gascoigne... Um, is brilliant with his technique. His technique is 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 spot on. So he would just we would just be talking in between takes or something. And then he'd just sort of say, "Oh, by the way, if you just turn a little bit there when you say that line, you'll be on that camera and that camera." Do you know what I mean? And I think you depend on yeah, you depend on the kindness of actors that have got more experience than you do, don't you? 
You do, and that's part, partly why I wanted to set this podcast up because, you know, I don't think there's any other profession that would put you on a you know, on the set or, or right in the middle of, of the production without any experience at all and expect you to sort of be on your metal, you know. I mean, my first day on a film set, I had no idea what was going on. People walking around, doing their, doing their job, and I was like, what's expected of me? I had no idea. And it was quite a big production, you know, and it was just so weird. So all you do is just be really, 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 really polite to everybody. And everyone's got like a nickname and you think, is that a department or is that a nickname or what, what am I, who am I, you know what I mean? You, you, you're completely in the dark. Even now, even I've been on Corrie now for four years and there are still sometimes on call sheets, um, either departments or little letters put after things. And I think, what's that mean? I don't understand who that is, <laughs> but I don't want to ask because yeah, I feel sure. like I should know. <laughs> Yeah, me too. It's very strange. It's a strange world. I mean, let's let's talk about auditioning because you know you. How did you first hear that they were looking for Daniel and they were looking for uh, they wanted you to audition? Um, oh, it's my agent. They um, they rang up and said that this part had become available. And um, at the time, I'd just finished. Uh, I'd just done three episodes in Emmerdale playing another rent boy. See, I, I seem to have found my niche quite early on. <laughs> um, and uh, the producer on that at the time, Kate Oates, she ended up moving uh, onto Coronation Street quite quickly after that. And um, so uh, a lot of stuff happened behind the scenes, which I wasn't aware of until much, much later on. But the actual audition process was just as standard as you as you would like. There was a breakdown for it. It said um, they're looking for a young Ken Barlow. Um, and I thought I had a good shot of getting it because, you know, my hair and, you know, I thought... I've features. Got, yeah, yeah, I thought I've got as good a chance as any of getting this. And then we did um, a first, uh, quite a wide audition where, you know, those ones where there's about 20 of you in a room and they're getting you... Just talk us through that then. So you, it's, you, you go in... There's, everybody's there together. It's not singular, is it? No, this one was a group. So they did, I think they did three days worth of this where they'd have uh, three sessions a day, each of them for two hours. Um, and in, in each of those sessions, there were 20 young uh, actors that sort of looked similar to me. So you go in and then you see everybody looks just like you and you go, oh. So, <laughs> so then we the usual stuff like playing... Um, games to see whether see how you know spontaneous you can be whether or not you can so are they improvisations are you doing improvisations yeah they were like little improvisational games um call and response things i think they're just trying to see how well you work with other people but also i think it's like loosening you up relaxing it relaxing you into the room and then we we just read the scenes that we got they partnered us with another actor in the room we read the scene um and you got to see everybody else do theirs as well which was interesting yeah. Wow. Um, so it really is show and tell then. It was like... It really, really was. And you got to... It was almost unfair, really, because the people that went first didn't get to see everybody else do it, whereas everybody who went towards the end, they could steal and cannibalise bits from what they'd seen other people do. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So then they, they, they sent us away from that and uh, got a call a few weeks later saying they want a screen test. And I think it had whittled down to about 12 people by that point. 
and the screen test was actually at ITV uh, on the Barlow set with Chris Gascoigne. Um, and I just remember it feeling, I, I felt big, like I kept bumping into things. Because they're very small, aren't they? They're much smaller than you imagine sets to be. They're not, they're not. They look so much bigger on screen. And we did, uh, we did the scene, did it with Chris a couple of times. Uh, again, sent me away. And I thought, you know, that thing after you've, you've built so much up for an audition that you're almost glad that it's over so you don't have to think about it anymore. Um, and who's watching? Who's watching you? You're doing it with Chris, who's an actor on the show. He's professional. He's, you know, obviously you've said he's a, a great guy, so he's giving you. He's generous with you. But who's who's watching it? Is there a director there, or a writer, or a producer? There was a director there and a, a, one of the casting agents, one of the casting directors for Corrie, Jenny Radcliffe, um, and obviously a small crew. Uh, but apart from that, no, no. So then the tapes go upstairs and I thought that would be it. I thought that was as far as the audition process was going to go. And then about four weeks later, I got another phone call off my agent and they said, they want you to do another screen test, but this time it's with uh, a girl. And I laughed and I said to my agent, I said, they, they want to see whether I can play it straight, don't they? And she went, mm, well, without, without actually saying that, yes, I think that's essentially what they're doing, which is absolutely right. Do you know what I mean? Um, so they called me and had the screen test with Katie. Um, and I think there was only about... And sorry, can I just step back a bit? So they will have given you scenes before that. Yes. And, and, and you've learned those scenes, have you? So are you going in with learnt lines of, what, two or three scenes of two or three pages each? Or what? Yeah, um, always learn. Um, especially if you're doing it on a screen test, you want to be as free as possible. But I have a, um, I have a, a neurological condition that causes me to shake. So I can't hold scripts in auditions because it distracts from what I'm actually doing. So I, as a rule, always know the lines every time I go in for any audition because I have to, because otherwise there's no point in me going in because all they're looking at is this piece of paper that's just going shaking all over the place. You know what I mean? Yeah, so they gave us, yeah, not long about... Uh, like you say, about two or three pages worth of dialogue. Um, did that one. And do you know anything about the character? Have they told you about his backstory or that they want him to be like this? So you're going in the character-wise blind. You're just going to play what you feel instinctively in that, in, in that yeah. screen. Yeah, the only, the, only, the only thing that you had to work on was, they said, a young Ken Barlow. Um, so it's essentially someone who it's essentially my own my own background I came from a from a working class family that worked its way up into lower middle classes which is sort of the Ken Barlow story in, in, in a way uh, coming from humble beginnings and then taking your advantages where you can get them so I just I just took it to mean that it was it was someone that was a little who considered themselves a little bit above the locals someone who'd been told constantly throughout their you know, that, that, they, that they're smart and that they're a bit above and, you know, you're going to go on to do good things. Uh, that kind of attitude. So that's, that was all I had to, to work on. And in your screen test that you're doing, does the director then step in and say, I like this bit you're doing, but maybe let's do that. You're getting notes at that time as well. Yeah, yeah. There were, in the second screen test, definitely the one with me and Katie, um, they... Yeah, like you say, they come over and they ask you... It, it might, might not be that they actually want it done a certain way. They're just trying to see, I think, whether or not you can take direction, aren't they? Um, yeah. So, yeah, there was a few little things. Um, 
And then at the end of the audition, I remember walking out and the casting director, Jenny Radcliffe, said to me, thanks very much for all the work that you put into this process. We appreciate it. I remember her saying that to me because the last time a casting director said that to me after an audition, I didn't get it. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I haven't got it, but they've, 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 they're still what I just say, we've, we've enjoyed meeting you and stuff. And then I was, um, funnily enough, because I, I was working at the BBC, which is just across the river from ITV. I was working on a deli um, on the, in the canteen there. I worked for a, a catering company for years as a, you know, in between going to drama school and coming back in the summer and the Christmas time and stuff. Um, and I was actually tossing salad when the phone rang in my pocket and I knew it was my agent. I knew it was my agent. Uh, but I couldn't answer it, obviously. And I think I told the guy, you, you just wait, just wait one second and like ran behind this industrial oven. Let's open my phone, the voicemail, and my agent's voice just said, who's a clever boy then? And then... <laughs> that was it. That is wonderful. I love that. But also what's great about that is, you know, there you are, you're... You're looking after yourself. You're doing a job, you know, like we all have to do outside of the profession. Yeah. And then you get that call. And obviously that success, you know, you're in there then. But how do you deal with the call when it's your agent saying it's not you this time? How do you take that personally? How do you know? Because I think that's a big part of an actor's life is getting knockbacks. How do you deal with that? Um, well, I've been auditioning for... Uh, it kind of split it into two. I My first professional job that I did was a play when I was 14 at the Oldham Coliseum. Um, did Brassed Off. And um, so I'd auditioned back then. And I remember when I was younger, before I went to drama school, I would take, I would take the rejections a lot more seriously and I would actually take them to heart. And I think it was the process of auditioning for drama school and not getting in the first year, having to wait, come back the second year with the very po real possibility that you wouldn't. I mean, I, in my second year of auditioning for drama schools, I got rejected from the first round from schools that had invited me all the way to the final round the year before. And I got further further along with other schools that I'd only just applied. Do you know what I mean? There, was, there seemed to be no logic whatsoever to the process. But... But there is no logic, is there? I think that's important to know that you're trying to impose a logic on something that just doesn't have any logic. So, you know, <laughs> don't try and grab hold of that. Exactly, exactly. But I think, and I think it was that. I think it was um, being at drama school and being not not broken down because it, it's it's quite it's gone legendary that now, isn't it? That you'll go to drama school and they'll just break you. They didn't do that. They built us up. They were very good at it. But they took really, really uh strong swipes at your ego as an actor um i think even if you'd even if you were doing good they would still sort of chip at it a little bit just to make you a little bit neurotic about your own about how well you're doing do you know what i mean which i think serves you well because after i left drama school uh it didn't bother me at all if i didn't get a recall because it was all it was what i expected and it makes you resilient, doesn't it, to criticism. It makes you real. If you can get up there and perform a, a scene or a piece or be, be absolutely ridiculous or, or really vulnerable in something, 
and then have people afterwards tell you where you could have done better or why it wasn't quite as good, the more you expose yourself to that kind of criticism, the better you become at resisting um, taking it personally. Yes, I think that's very important not to take it personally. Um, that, you know, sometimes you'll walk into a room and it doesn't matter about how talented you are or not. You're, you're just not right as far as they're concerned. And that's it. You know, it's, it's, if you take it personally, it's, it can get very dark, I think. So when you... Before, I was just going to say um, Hollyoaks for years before... I, I think I auditioned for Hollyoaks nine times over about four or five years. And that one was the only one that I got to the point where I was going, I'm not going back. I'm not going back again. I'm not doing it. My agent was like, they obviously like you. They're just trying to find somewhere to put you in the show. But nine times, that was that was a bit... That, that, I did get to the point where I was going, I'm not getting on that bus to Liverpool again. I'm not doing it. <laughs> but what's great is something did come along. You know, that's... You wait and something comes along. From that call that you got to your agent when you're behind the oven, how far from there to walking on the set or going to meet the creatives did you have? Was it just a matter of days or weeks? No, it was, it was about two months because um, I remember thinking that I, what I wanted to do was take my penny off and just walk out. <laughs> but I realised that I had another two months worth of waiting and I needed to make money during that time. So um, it was a delayed gratification. It was a delayed... There was the, the getting the actual job itself, booking the job, um, and then the slow, the waiting process. And it, it, it did feel literally like waiting for your life to change. You, but you knew it was going to happen. But, and you just had to... And what did you, do in, what did you do in that time? Was there anything coming at you creatively? Were they saying, look, here's lots of old episodes to watch? Here's, was there any of that? Was they saying, look, here's the book we have on Daniel? Because obviously other actors, younger actors had played him in the past. They'd had some sort of idea of a young Ken Barlow and stuff like that. Were they feeding you with anything in, the, in those two months or were you just on your own? No, they didn't. Um, they, if I remember correctly, I got one quite long email from the casting director saying, welcome on board to the show and everything. Um, but, but they ultimately, they just said, there is a backstory to this character and that is that his mum has abandoned him now since the age of 14. So he's been living by himself, basically, for this long. Um, and it was, it was out of that information that I got every, everything that I had to use. So, um, you know, you, you were, you were he's, he's at university when we met him. So this is someone that spent, has spent years uh, uh, convincing educators that he's got a parent at home. So this is someone who can lie uh, really well. They've got to be charming because they've got to be able to get around these these moments. Um, and also, what does lying do to people? My experience of lying is that lying begets more lies and you end up at white lies that eventually build up and build up and build up until you can't remember what you've said to who. So that was, the, that was my thinking on it. So when I first came in, um, the director had, um, he said he wanted it to be a bit mysterious. So he, he used a shot that was unusual for Coronation Street at the time, um, just sort of like to signal that, the, that this character was, you needed to pay attention here. 
Um, so that was kind of how I approached it was to, to have a lot going on, try and have a lot going on behind the eyes and not giving too much away in person. But when you're, when you're digging into him and you're, you're thinking about how he survived. So, you know, he, he's come from this background. He's been abandoned. Abandonment is a big thing for him. So in order to not be abandoned, he's latching onto things. He's creating an identity for himself. When you're, when you're looking at that, are you writing that down? Or are you just abstractly thinking that? Do you ever go out and try that on in public for yourself? How are you, because uh, it's all on your own at the moment, isn't it? How are you cementing those ideas? I presume you don't even have a script at the moment. How are you, how are you? How are you working with that? Is it notebooks? Is it? Are you looking at characters that might? Are you looking at psychology books? And yeah, like I'm. I'm a. I'm a massive geek about it. I mean, one of the main. One of the things that I enjoy the most is all the stuff that you never end up. Never ends up being able to be demonstrated to be used, but you just hope that it kind of filters through what you're doing. Um, yeah, I've got. I can't. I can't remember where it is now. Otherwise, I'd grab it. But um, I've got a, a huge notebook that's. Um, basically just full of stuff like that from auditions that I've gone to. Uh, during the audition process, I wrote, I filled in all of the gaps in, in his life that I, could, that I could find and added things into it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a massive note taker and a geek about things. And then I will, I will take the, some ideas that I have and take them to the script writers because one of the brilliant things about being on on the show that is continuous and has to come up with drama constantly is that if you show them something either in the scene that they didn't expect or literally go to them and say, what about this as an idea, they will take it and they will, they will incorporate it into, into the character and into the story. So yeah, there was a lot. Was that, was that, was that a new experience for you as an actor with writers? Was Corey the first time that you thought, I can have a real input in my character's journey here. It was, it was that the first time? And is that to do with the way the Corrie set up and the writers and stuff uh, are amenable to that? Absolutely. Beyond, beyond doing devising projects, which I did um, when I was younger, when I'd go to weekend drama classes, apart from when you completely make something up yourself, all through the training that I'd had and on other jobs, um, the script is the script. Someone's been paid to write this. Someone's thought about these words and it's not your job to go, actually, I think it'd be better if I should just say, do you know what I mean? Um, so, so no, I, I, I respect other people's uh, contribution to what's, what's going on. Um, and I wouldn't attempt to, for- I wouldn't attempt to force uh, an idea I think I think more what the actors are able to do is because uh, in the scripts that you get on on uh, on the show because there's so much of it and because of the sheer volume sometimes the writers will indicate emotions that that they think the actor is or the character is supposed to be going through and my instinct is to always cross that stuff out um, any 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 kind of form of written direction just ignore because. I mean, I think it was, we did a George Bernard Shaw play at um, drama school, and whereas the opposite is true, where the, the, the stage directions have to be followed meticulously. Um, and that's because it, there's so much action. 
But when there's no action involved with it, when certain characters don't need to take the cream at a certain point and, you know, for the gag to work, all of that stuff to me seems like um, it's your decision. It's your decision how that will go. So um, usually if you, get a, if you get a scene, for example, and it's written that you're angry and you instead play it disappointed, the writer will watch it and go, well, I didn't expect you to do... Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. And then they will go and they will start to sort of incorporate what it is that you're doing into it. Um, so it is a collaboration, but it's kind of delayed. It's like they'll send you the script and then in six weeks' time they'll see what you do. And then in another six weeks you'll get a bit of a change in the script. Do you know what I mean? So it's a nice break. And during those, during those six weeks bits, is there bits where do you sit down and have a lunch with some of the writers? Do you sit down and have a coffee? Do you talk about, you know, I've been thinking that maybe Daniel could do this or maybe what about this? What's coming down the line for me? Is there a, are you involved in a creative discussion off the set? Well, um, unofficially, yes, but officially, no. Um, when the writer, they have their conference, they have one down in, they have one, I think it's either in London or they go to like a retreat somewhere. They have one of these big conferences. And then in between these, they have um, writers' conferences here in Media City. And afterwards, the writers always go to the pub. So if I hear that there's a, a writers' conference on, I'm in the pub. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. So, and and, it, and it not, not contrived, not contrived at all. Um, and then you just... There's only one pub in Manchester. <laughs> there's only one pub in Media City, so that's the only place you can go to. Um, and then, yeah, like I say, they because you don't get to speak to each other that often, it's, it's interesting. It's nice to get those... Um, to get those exchanges between the two of you where you can say, you know, I, I got that impression from this scene and X, Y, and Z. And yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be able to uh, speak to the people that are writing the show as well, I think, yeah. We'll be back with more chat after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. And also, I think, you know, there's a point where you, obviously, it's the writers that you're going to, but you have to take ownership of your character. Yeah. And, and, and also, I guess on your show and many shows now, it's hard to build up a relationship with a director for a long time because the directors come and go. So it's about who do I build this relationship with for the longevity of the character? And I guess it has to be the writer, doesn't it? But you have, you have quite a few writers on the show, don't you? Yeah, uh, yeah. And it, you obviously certain... It's the same, I imagine, with anything. It's certain... Uh, in, in the same way that certain actors suit, suit, suit parts more than other actors do, certain writers suit the voice of your character more than others do. Um, and you get a feel for that, I think, as you go through. You can sometimes guess who's written the script by listening, by saying it. And you do, obviously, you have, uh, uh, like, imagine in, in the writer's room that the the writers that write the best, the best for your character, they'll be the ones pitching most of the stories for your character. So, yeah, there's a safety, there's a safety in that. Now, I know it's a show that you were a huge fan of uh, growing up and stuff. So when you get to that first day, what, what was the first day like for you? What was it like working on those sets, walking on those, you know, the cobbles? What was, it, how, what was going on in your okay. brain and, and your emotions? Yeah, if you can imagine being eight years old and it being Christmas, birthday, and you were going to Disneyland all on the same day... It'd be, it'd be sort of like that. Um, I don't think I slept very much the night before. Um, I was... It, it was like first day of school. It was like first day of school. You, 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 hope that, you hope that everyone's nice to you and that your tie isn't too long. And, you know, you just... You just, you just that's what you want. Um, uh, and you go into the building and, and then you, you see your name on one of the dressing rooms... You think <laughs> it's uh, it's a feeling like no other, and it's not gone either, which I'm grateful for. Um, every time I walk onto the street, I do go. It's I think it's the green of the rovers. Something about the green of the rovers that just makes you go, "Whoa, look where I am." Um, which which doesn't ha- always have the same effect, I think, on the uh, on the studios inside because you know that that's always moving and changing. Those are literally walls that are coming out from behind you and everything. And but on the street, because the facade of it is there, you can touch it and and feel it. Um, it 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 can make you very um, aware of where you are. I think, which is good. It is good, but sometimes that awareness of with a show like that, it can tip over into a sense of, you know, your energy and your nerves can take you out of the moment sometimes. They can, you know, because it can all get a little bit too much for you. And I'm talking for me personally now, it can get a bit too much for me. Uh, How do you ensure that you're still making sure that you're playing Daniel rather than, you know, you're Rob going, oh my, I'm on the set, you know, where's that? Um, I always think that when you use, it, I think everyone's a bit different, aren't they? Like some people use a word 
to trigger to trigger themselves. Some people use. Uh, well, it's very like funny, like with the storyline that we've recently done with um, with Daniel's wife dying. Um, we I used a perfume um, because there was a certain perfume that reminded after she'd gone. There was a scene where I had to hold all these clothes that were supposed to be my dead wives, hold them and just sob. And uh, it was easier to put a little bit of the perfume that you associate with that person on because you just you trick yourself, don't you? Uh, I always, if I do get a little bit. Um, carried away by where I am, I just do the basic thing. I go, where has my character just been? What do they want? And go. I think it's, it's the, the, the simpler it is, the, the, the better. I think that's wonderful. I think the perfume is, is fantastic. I sometimes use music to, just to make sure. Because the other thing on a film set and a TV set is it's a busy place and it's busy for a reason, isn't it? Because everybody needs to be doing their jobs and the actor is just part of this crew and everything else and you just... But you need to be in an emotional place to do your job. So it's just how, how do you protect that emotional space that you have on a busy film set, particularly for you on your job because it's thick and fast, isn't it, what you're doing? Yeah, uh, I would usually, because there's a lot of banter on it, because the long days, and because it's a, a, a the crew are the same, basically, so you, it, the, the, the banter and the camaraderie on set is really good fun, and it's, it's, it's one of the saving things that gets you through the day. But like you say, there are moments when you need to, you can't do that because of what you're expected to do in a scene. Um, and if uh, people notice you take take yourself off to the side, or uh, if, if you just let it be known that you're you, you're just getting ready to do the scene, there is a lot of respect for that, and they're all they've all been doing this long enough that they can recognise when an actor is doing that. Um, and if that isn't happening, because you particularly have had some really emotional storylines, you know the Sinead storyline, obviously, and then beyond that, and and your relationship with Ken, you know, and stuff, but. If that isn't happening, if there's something, if say one member of the crew isn't respecting that atmosphere, who, what's your chain of command to get what you need for that scene? Uh, well, I would always just ask the person if they wouldn't mind either moving away or, or being quieter. Um, but I think naturally you would go to the first, I think, um, and just because it's difficult because you don't want to be you don't want to be that that person do you know what I mean that the crew when they move around on different projects they go oh yeah we worked with him and he was a right dick do you know what I mean like but every time I hear stories like that I always think mm, were they a dick or were they just trying to focus do you know what I mean um, so yeah I suppose you go to the first assistant is the person who sort of is there to run the set. And what you would be hoping that they would be doing is making sure it was quiet or whatever. And I think the chain of command is if you can go to a first assistant and say, look, this this radio or this guy's talking a bit too loud, is it okay? You know. And I think if you're respectful to them, they'll get respectful to you in that way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The the because it's interesting working in uh in that building. Less so now obviously because of uh everything that's happened with corona and the lockdown. Everyone's working from home. It's it's like a ghost ship in there now. But it was um on the ground floor you'd have crew and the studios. Middle floor you have the actors, 
And then on the top floor, you have all the production and it's more office-y. And as you go further up the building, you get, you get the impression that you are in an office. Um, but because everyone was all in the same building, it meant that you got to know everybody really, really well. So there is a, a code of conduct that is just kind of um, inculcated into you without you really being aware of it. As long as you're paying attention... Because that's the thing, isn't it, as well? Now I'm really comfortable on those sets. And, and when I see new actors coming in onto the set, I make a concerted effort to make them feel okay because you understand what that felt like yourself to be... And, and did that happen to you when you came on? Did the actors already come over to you? Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I, I, had, I was put in a great position. I was, I was working with Bill and Chris. So... It, it, it was. It was the most cushioned landing and into the show I could I could have asked for. Um, but you might, yeah, it's like when you've only got one day of work on something, or even just one line in one scene as either a paramedic or something like that, and you you come onto a set full of actors that know each other and they're all bantering with each other, and you can kind of feel a little bit periphery. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I try and I try and. Because it was, like you say, because it was what I experienced, you sort of pay it forward, don't you? And can I just ask, so when do you get the scripts? Do you get, how much prep time would you have? You get a script, uh, you learn your lines and stuff, but between it arriving in your hands to you walking on set and saying it, how long is that? Ten working days. Wow. Ten working days. Um I don't always read them as soon as I get them, though. Um, mm -hmm. It's a strange one because when I first when I first started on the show, I was meticulous with script preparation, and because there's a lot of numbers involved uh, in terms of scenes and pages. What are those numbers? Just let me know what the what you mean by that. You'll open a, you'll open up the front page, the episode numbers, for example. So we're on we're over a, we're over ten thousand now. So the episode number is like ten thousand. 96.4 or whatever it is they put down and then it'll say you know doing uh, ext 27.2 or something and so there's a lot of and i've got dyscalculia so it's 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 a bit tricky with 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 those types of things um and because you do get such a volume of scripts um it can be daunting to see them stacked up there without having looked at them but the longer i've been there the more i've realized that I think it was Chris Gascoigne that said this to me. He said, it, the, the image of a pebble going, skimming across a lake, he said, um, because of how much we have to do and how uh, quickly it turns around, if you try and treat this like it's Chekhov, if you try and treat this like it's a, a Russian, you know, novel, that you've got to psychological realism to the absolute limit that you can take it, said, you will burn out and die. So he said, I've seen actors who've been working decades longer than you come into the show and not, not be able to keep up with the pace. So you, you skim it. You, 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 that's the depth that you approach each of the scenes. And then over the episode or over the storyline, you will have built up the, what's necessary to tell the story. Whereas trying to tell all of the story in every single scene it's just not possible with the volume that we have to put up with. And that you would burn out if you were doing that? Without a doubt. Without a doubt, yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you're looking at a scene, 
there are things that you would like to achieve in the, you know, and they're quite light things or not light things, but they're quite achievable things. You're not mining it. And that's purely to do with the time that you are given in order to tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. It is the, because you're dealing as well with, um, uh, there's a lot of things that come up for the sake of the show. So they'll say things like, um, you, you find yourself saying characters' names more often than you would in real life. You know, obviously to remind the audience of, and you're a lot of, a lot of expositional things that will, will be said. So obviously you can't really mind that. Um, in fact, uh, Sue Cleaver, who plays Eileen, I was watching her go through her lines once, learning them in the green room. And she said one line and she went, oh, well, that'll be a movement line then. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, it's basically just exposition. That's all I'm saying. I'm just reminding the audience what they did. So when I say that line, I'll pick something up and move it somewhere else on the set. And she she said, it's a way of uh, uh, covering up the fact that you're actually just speaking exposition. You, you layer it with other, with other tricks, other acting tricks, to hide the fact that you're not actually saying anything new. Um, that's brilliant. I, so that stuff like that, I think, so, is... Yeah, I, I love that. That's what I love the most, is learning how actors do things like that. So you go, oh, I don't want to say that line. Okay, so I'll take a sip of my tea on that one then. <laughs> but there's some stuff, isn't there, that you can't do that with. I mean, you know, your storyline... You had to really go there. You had to really, you know, and it's a story, and not just because, you know, the story demands it, but I think one of the great things about the show is it's in most people's living rooms in this country. So there's some storylines that you have a massive responsibility to get right, isn't there? And yours is one of them. And I know that, you know, you did do quite a bit of research of talking to people who've gone through that type of bereavement, you really did, for that storyline particularly, and I'm sure for others, you went out and you found people who'd been through that, hadn't you? Yeah, like, yeah, like you say, certain storylines require, um, require more research on your part. Um, so, and because, like we said like earlier, no, because of the skimming of, of, other, of, of other scenes, you earn the, the deeper moments by by not milking them earlier on. Um, because a show like, uh, a show like there's, a, there's quite a pace to it, and in, even in the way it was shot, um, the, other, like the camera would be following characters down the street, and then as they stop talking and walk off, another set of characters will move in, the camera will go back. There's a motion, there's a momentum to the episode, it's carrying you through. through. And then when you get scenes like the death scenes, you're, you're able to stop that motion and let everything sit. And because it's not um, the way that the show is normally formatted, it highlights uh, to the viewer and makes, I think, your job easier because something else has been signaled to go, this is a moment, this is a... And, and, and it's been earned because, say, for example, um, like you asked earlier about building a relationship with certain directors, because of the way that you, you work across blocks... Um, you like we knew me and Katie that um, she was going to die, but we knew that it was still a way off. And yet, when we'd have scenes to play months before, um, so because directors obviously they've got four episodes to do, they want the big emotion in their episode. They want them in their episodes, understandably, because it gives them something more to to play with. It's it's absolutely understandable. 
but you've got to be able to say to that director, I can't hit that note now because then I'll leave myself nowhere to go and the audience will get tired and it will seem disingenuous because you'll think, well, hang on, they've been hysterical for months now. <laughs> like, surely they'd have burnt themselves out by this point. I think that's so important, that plotting yeah. of how you plot, what you give, when you give it. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's hard sometimes when you work on shows that, like when I worked in America, you're given the, you're given the episode as it, you know, the, we worked on eight-day shoots, but we would be given our episode on the Thursday that we would start shooting on the Tuesday. And I had no idea what was in that episode. So it was it was hard to gauge what you gave because you didn't know. So um, so I'm really I think it's great what you're saying about that sense of making sure that you're not at at, at eleven for the whole thing. So what did you do then? Because how do you how if you don't know uh, how intense it's going to go? It, am I right in thinking? Do you do you do less? Did you laugh? Well, what you what I would do is I would ha- then the music of the piece. I would think, well, this episode requires, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of emotion, and I go for a lot of emotion. So, if my next episode was very emotional, I'd have to find another way of playing that story that was different to the the episode I'd done. So, if I'm screaming and shouting in in, in episode eight, and episode nine is screaming and shouting, I think, well, maybe he doesn't scream and shout because the music has to be different. So I'd be looking at the musical score just because it said he was angry. I would decide what that anger was and how to play it. So, so scene, but it, scenes, sorry, so is that what you're saying then? Scenes effectively are notes of music for the entire thing. Is that, is that how you're seeing it? So scenes are that's how I would see it, yeah. Right, okay. I would see it as a, as a musical score-like, Going through it, really. This is where the swell happens, and this is where it gets quieter again, and then this is the crescendo. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I get. I can get that. That's a. That's a good way. And of because it. we were, and and I would only do that because we were getting the scripts piecemeal. I didn't have, you know, I do other jobs where you get the whole ten episodes or whatever, and then I can find out my way through that emotionally. But I love what you were saying about the fact that you knew where you were going. You and Katie knew. So you would have to say to the director, I can't do it here because I'm getting... Yeah, and uh, I'm playing sort of the same scenes over and over again in many ways because for the same reason that characters are always uh, calling other characters by their name, we'd sometimes have to do uh, the same scene again just with slightly different words to remind the audience what's what's happened, and like you say, it's it's the challenge there. The actor's challenge there is to find all the different ways of playing that moment, so that they don't look like you're doing the same scene twice or three times. Even we had to do scenes where at my age, you see, I'm always repeating myself anyway, so it's <laughs> it's quite natural for me. <laughs> But it is, it's like we have to do these scenes where we get told by the doctor that the cancer's come back. And then a few weeks later, we get told that the chemo didn't work. And then a few weeks later, we get told that she's going... Do you know what I mean? So all of these are the same. It's us two sat in the doctor's 
office receiving bad news. And so you think, well, if I only had to play this once, I could just play it absolutely devastated. And it, you'd, a simple, you'd simple, you'd know how to play it simply. It makes sense. But when you've got to do the same, you've got to receive bad news. You've got to come up with three different ways of receiving that news, haven't you? Because But also what's wonderful about that is that is the truth of people who are going through that situation. That they are going through it and they are sitting in front of people constantly wanting to hear good news and constantly, you know, for some people constantly getting bad news. So what you're what you're doing there, and I have to say, having seen it, you do it brilliantly, it's not it's not about, oh, here I am having to do this again and do this again. It's like I am portraying something that people go through all the time, all the time in this country. And I know that you did work exterior, you know, outside of this, where you talk to people. Is it, was it Mummy Star that you spoke to and stuff like that? And yeah. Tell me a little bit about that research. Yeah. Um, Pete Walrath, who's the CEO of Mummy Star, um, he, that's the, it's his story, basically. Him and his wife, um, who died, Maya, um, it was their story. They, they'd uh, just found out that she was pregnant with their son and then suddenly cancer. And it was out of his, um, out of the grief of that, that he set up the charity because how, how could, uh, you don't leave a moment like that. that. There is a before and after. There was a yesterday the world was different and today my world is going to be different forever. Um, so they initially, when the storyline was being crafted by the uh, producers and the story, uh, the writers, um, they worked quite a lot with the charity, getting all of the details of, of how treatment works and, you know, all of that information. But then Pete said that he would like to meet both me and Katie. And I was a little bit resistant at first because even though I knew it was great source material to go to. There was an element to it that felt a little bit callous. Um, this was someone's life and I wanted to sort of dig, dig, sorry, dig through their, their experiences. But I did go and meet him eventually and I told him that. I said, I've got to be honest with you, I feel a little bit uh, inappropriate because I've only just met you and I know I said I know actors do this all the time when they go to meet people but this is my first so just so you know but he was so so forthcoming um obviously I had his his aspects of the storyline to play which is how does the partner deal with everything that's going on and I had one main question for him and he was completely honest with me and it was that that kind of made me go I'm glad I'm glad that I met you now I said to him when you're looking after, when you were looking after your wife, and particularly towards the end, how selfish were your thoughts? How much were you actually thinking about her and the child, or or whatever? And honestly, in those last days, how much did you think, what's going to happen to me? What am I going to do? Do, do you know what I mean? And he, his answer was, his answer was, all the time, all the time said it doesn't diminish from your, your ability to care for somebody else, to care about yourself as well. No, and I think it's a really important question. And I think, you know, because when I meet people who are in the jobs that I'm, I'm portraying or been through the experiences that I'm portraying, 
I have to find it in myself to ask really tough questions of them because that's what I have to do. And the real gold is in that stuff. It's in the it's in the stuff that's really difficult and hard to talk about. And you know, that's where you find the gold. That's where you you know it doesn't become just another sort of performance of general emotion. Emoti- emoti- yeah, you're not. You're not. Yeah, you're not. You're not just emoting. Uh, uh, the situation, like you say, you, you you've got um, guilt. Guilt's interesting to play because of how it how it affects. But there's a difference between guilt and shame. Uh, and I think it, it, guilt is I did something bad, but it wasn't that bad. And then shame is I'm never going to admit this. I'm not even going to talk about it. It's a difference between. Yeah. Between the two, I always feel that that thing of guilt is a you know you're 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 sorry for something you've done, and shame is you're you're sorry for who you are. Yes, and it's it it's it's what you carry, you know, and it's that that thing of if I can drop the rock, yeah, then I, I can drop the shame. People that can people that can distance themselves from their past behaviours might feel guilty, but people that can't do it feel shame, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and obviously, as a person, you wouldn't want to live like that. But as an actor, that's what makes characters interesting. Yeah, exactly. that's why we watch them. Yeah. I mean, just, just to round up a little bit, you know, it's a massive show. It's, you know, it's in everybody's front room. And you're, you know, you've, for a while now, you've been front and centre of it. It's a great, great performance, great character, I think. How do you, your, your life changed how do you, and I'm not talking about celebrity here, but how do you deal with that part of our job where you're suddenly giving up your privacy or whatever because you're now on the telly every time? How do you deal, how do you keep that to your, your, in yourself? It's an interesting one because, you, I mean, look at, look at your, your career, for example. It would make sense to me that someone would stop you in the street it still doesn't quite make sense to me why someone would... Because essentially what I'm saying is, I'm not famous, Coronation Street is. That's what people notice when they look at me. Whereas when they look at you, they recognise you from many things that you've done. It's the show that's famous, it's not me. And this has been proven because actors that have been in the show for a while, when they leave... Only a couple of years after leaving, they, they basically go back to having normal lives. People stop, don't stop them in the street. People don't... It, it's bizarre. It's the show that's, that's famous. And people say that. They don't go, oh, there's Rob Mallard. They go, oh, Corey, Corey. So it's, it's an interesting one because you are a representative for something else. And that's kind of the way I've approached it. Um, I must admit, before I got the job on Coronation Street, I used to be a bit more sort of, uh, you know, going out and getting drunk and not having to worry about necessarily falling over as you're coming out of a bar or something. Um, But the show forces you to take on that responsibility. It forced me, it definitely forced me to, because I wanted it. It was something that I'd wanted for ages and I took it seriously. And so it straightened me out, as it were. Um, you realise how fragile it is that if you get photographed doing X, Y or Z, it'll all be over and it's just not worth it. So what was it someone said? Don't take yourself seriously, but take what you do seriously. Um, 
Yeah, so it's an interesting one. And uh, people, when I pushed Ken down the stairs, for example, people were al- yeah. almost hissing at me in the street, almost hissing. And then, well, fa- you deserve that, Rob. You so deserve that. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was bound to happen. And then when when Sinead died, I was being covered in sympathy by complete strangers. Um, so it's bizarre. People treat you according to what they're seeing you go through on screen, which is why if you're a baddie, I imagine it's just awful because people just... Well, it it depends because sometimes if you're a baddie, people don't come over to you. Because they're scared. You know, they'll they'll avoid you. Whereas if you're the good guy, everyone's coming over to you. So you can't have a meal anyway, you know. Whereas if you're if you're a bad guy, sometimes people think twice before approaching you. So it depends. Right? When was it? When was it with you? When was it that you noticed that being in public was was different? Well, it depends. I mean, on on the Walking Dead because that became a world that is a worldwide show. I suddenly was aware of it because I'd be in Italy or I'd be somewhere else, and people would be sort of really, you know. And that was new in the UK. I'd had had it, but you know. Like many actors, 99.9% of the interaction I have with people walking down the street is is absolutely positive. And it's very, very flattering and it's great. And I, you know, it's, it's what my job is. And every now and again, it's a bit like, oh. But that is so rare compared to what it, the, what, what, when it's good. And mostly people want to tell me that they're enjoying what I'm doing. And I love that. You know, that's, that's what it is. And I've... I've never, you know, I, I, I saw this thing. Um, I've never compared myself with Beyonce, but <laughs> <laughs> she was on the Glastonbury thing was on the other day. She was on Glastonbury and I was watching her and she was just fantastic as she always is, just great. And at one point she stopped the show and she said, hey, Glastonbury, I want you to know that what you're seeing right now, this is my dream. And I was like, yeah. That is it. And I have to do that all the time to myself. You know, I'll be in the middle of some terrible location. It's the middle of the night. It's freezing cold. It's pissing with rain. It's, you know, there's no tea. And I'll have to say to myself, what I'm doing now, this is my dream. And I go, oh, yeah, it is. This is what I want. You asked for this. This is where I feel. Yeah. Yeah, You asked for this. And And it's all gravy. It's all gravy. Yeah. But it's the it's that thing as well, like when you consider what that might mean to someone, like you say, passing you in the street, even though for you it could be the tenth time that day that someone stopped and said something to you and it could be a bit, you know, you could be getting a bit annoyed with it because you're trying to get things done. But from that one person's perspective, you may have actually just made that that person's day. They may go home and sit, turn to their partner and go, Guess who I bumped into in Costa? Guess who I bumped into in Costa? And that's it. That's what you didn't. All you had to do was just not be a dick. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, and also, and also, it is testament to my job. You know, I mean, I think if people are saying, "Hey, I saw you," then it means I'm, I'm, all, I'm doing, I'm working, I'm doing what I want to do, and that's it. And I'm, I'm very grateful of that all the time. Rob, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. I think what you've done with the character and what he's been through has been really awe-inspiring. I find it crazy that you go through that so quickly, but it's, you deliver, I deliver in spades all the time. It's fantastic. Keep doing what you're doing and uh, I hope you're safe in lockdown and all that, man. Yeah, you too. I hope, I hope it's not been too traumatic. 
we're all right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks See so you much. soon. See you soon. Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.